morning I get to say this, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. It is the third book after Matthew and Mark, there's Luke. And Lord willing, we embark today upon a series of sermons through this, the longest book in the New Testament. It may take us two years, we'll take little breaks along the way for occasions, for Christmas and Advent and things like that. But what an adventure we begin on to study one of the Gospels, one of the portraits of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at the Gospel of Luke, so uh, find a, a bookmark and keep it there with me for the weeks ahead. As you're turning, let me welcome our viewing audience at home, those who are uh, catching the sermon by live stream. God bless you. Uh, We also pray that you might uh, worship with us soon and reach out to the church so that we can uh, be of help to you and get to know you. Reading from the English Standard Version of God's holy and inspired word, the first four verses of Luke's Gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Thus we read in God's holy word, may God bless all who read, hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. I've entitled the the sermon, I don't have a series titled yet, I'm working on that. But today as we start and look at the preface to this great book of the New Testament, the sermon title is The Truth Be Told. Usually that is spoken quietly in the middle of a conversation or to interrupt a conversation and to press in some news that someone may not yet know. Well, the truth be told, and it almost implies that there's something amiss in what's being discussed. It almost implies that you're misinformed. The truth be told is the claim that here I'm going to bring to you some real facts about a situation. I wish it was practiced more in our major mainstream media. We see a little bit of it today, uh, even in the last few days, as a recent mass shooting where everybody's asking, why did this young man kill his neighbors on this occasion with that weapon? And the investigative reporters have done their work. And in this case, they've unmasked a very bad home life with outbursts of violence between the parents in home and in public, with other weapons and other violent threats being used by the young man and warning signs left and right. But no one paying attention because they were also in emotional and mental disarray, it seems. And so with that shooting event and that offender, that evil person and that evil deed, we now can say the truth be told, there's more to the story. Why would we use this phrase about Jesus? 
Why would we use this phrase when we're talking about our Lord? Well, many people are operating under misconceptions. Many people have already categorized Jesus. Oh yeah, he's some old guy who wore a robe and sandals and said some wise things, but got himself killed. There are so many misunderstandings about the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to interrupt the dialogue of the world and say this, the truth be told, he performed and behaved and spoke as the Son of God would. And he is alive today and there's proof. We can interrupt the false narrative that abounds and bring the truth. If we've done the homework, if we know the facts and can bring them to others, if we know God's word and if we can give our own testimony to it, it becomes a rich interruption. How else can the world get away with using the name of Jesus as a curse? What must they think of him that they can just throw out his name as a profane comment? They certainly don't think of him as the son of God come from on high, who had legions of angels at his command, who at a word could calm the wind and the waves or raise a dead person to life. They don't know Jesus. And they need to hear the truth. The truth be told He's way more than what you think. And I was going to wait to the end, but I'll put it up front. I think one of the best responses to the preaching of God's word today is for you to find someone and interrupt their life and tell them the truth about Jesus. Or, or if, you, if you don't feel bold enough to do that for yourself, grab them and say, come to church. I've got to tell you about the Son of God. And my pastor is going to preach through the Bible book of Luke and talk about Jesus so we really know who he was. Shouldn't that be our response? This is good news. And it is a telling of the truth. And the Gospel of Luke is an amazing example of historical carefulness given to the world for 2,000 years. To read about Jesus. So this is just the preface of the book. One of my favorite commentators, Dale Ralph Davis, his sermon on this first section is always read the preface. That's his title. Uh, I read the preface when I read a book and I know what's coming. This preface, Luke tells us so much about the gospel itself and what this book is about. And it might be helpful to clarify uh, the term gospel. When it's spelled with a capital G, it is the title of one of the four books of the Bible. With a capital G, it means the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. It's a title. Normally, when we're talking about the good news, the message of the Bible, gospel is just spelled with a little g. It's just a, a word from the Greek meaning good news. So hopefully we won't be too confused as we talk about both the title of the book and the message of the book. Here we go. First, we want to look at our first heading that this is a historical account. This is an historical account. It is about the life of Jesus, and it's a life that uh, had a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then a new beginning. 
with the resurrection from the dead. It is about a historical person. It starts, the very next paragraph from what we've looked at today, it starts with his birth in the days of Herod. uh, And he talks about how there was a baby coming. And then he talks about the day the baby was born. He talks about Jesus from birth through life through death and then resurrection. It's more than a biography because it's bringing not just the facts of the life but their significance, their import, and it does so with an aim to persuading us to believe personally in this person. It's his birth. It records with clarity several historical events. In verse 1, it simply says to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. It seems vague, but it talks about historical events. Just skim with me and be ready to turn the page. In chapter 1, verse 5, there's a historical marker. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest called Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a white, and it goes on, it gives us historical markers, and you can find out. Was there really a king named Herod? Uh, yes. In Judea? Yes. And we know Herod's reign, we know his dates. He even interacted with Jesus before it was all through. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we are given historical markers as well. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that was a real Caesar that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There must have been more than one. Quirinius must have been really big on taking uh, registrations. Maybe he had a nickname. But Luke is a careful historian, and he gives us these historical markers. And even at the beginning of chapter 3, what do we read there? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Aturia, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. These are historic names and places that we can check out. By the way, there are several other geographic markers. Chapter 2, verse 39 mentions Nazareth and Galilee, and it talks about the Galilean period, then it talks about Jerusalem, it talks about place names. This is a book that you can check it out. And dare I say for the young generation, yes, you can Google Herod. You can Google uh, Philip, the Tetrarch, and uh, Pilate. I, I learned some of these names when I was in college and studied Greek and Roman history. These aren't just Bible characters. These are historic characters. And so when Luke sets out to write about the life of Jesus, he places it in history. Historical markers, geographic markers. And take a look at chapter 3, verse 23 and following. Genealogy. There's a family tree here in Luke, even as there is in in Matthew's gospel. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, and it goes on. I'm not going to read the paragraph today. We'll get to that paragraph. We'll preach on that paragraph. Won't that be exciting? It will be. 
It's in the Bible. Today I bring it up because Luke sets out to do what the New York Times doesn't do so well. He gives history. He gives the facts. He gives the significant things we need to know. Things that can be checked out. And when he says things that have been accomplished among us, that is a clear reference to fulfilled prophecy as well as just words and deeds. What did Jesus do? What, it also points to things that were fulfilled, prophesied 400, 600, 1,000 years before. Let me give you one example. In Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it's not set off in quotes with a, or bold-faced type, but there's a reference here to one of the last words of the Old Testament. In Luke 1, 17, there's this phrase about uh, how the Lord will work through John the Baptist. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, that was a prophecy, and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Look up Malachi chapter 4. You see those scriptures fulfilled. The, the scripture references saying that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. John the Baptist fulfilled that role. Things were accomplished in those days. Old Testament things were fulfilled. Chapter 1 of Luke is a very long chapter because it has a lot of material, including the Song of Mary, the Magnificat, her song of praise over the child she was about to deliver. You can see it here, typically set off as poetry, beginning in verse uh, 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord. And in those verses, Mary's anthem cites 23 Old Testament passages. How does Luke know about that to write it down? Yes, the Holy Spirit guided him and led him to write exactly the words he wrote. But Luke was also a historian, and he went and interviewed, because the scriptures here talk about eyewitnesses. It's long been believed that Luke interviewed Mary before she died. And maybe Mary sang this song for Luke, and Luke's saying, slow down, I'm writing this down. Because Luke was used of the Holy Spirit to write this down does not preclude his human efforts to do research, to use his vocabulary in the narrative, just as Matthew, Mark, and John, their personalities show through their writing. The Holy Spirit uses men like a pen, as it were, and the tip of different pens write differently. If you do fountain pens, you know there can be a fine point, a bold point, an italic point, and you can tell by the writing. And so too, it is God who is the penman and author of Scripture, but he employs different writers. And so Luke writes about the life of Jesus in its historical setting, paying attention to these Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled. Why would he do that? Because this is the, the climax of history, and history was being made, and stuff foretold long ago was accomplished, fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Overall, Luke quotes from the Old Testament over 30 times himself, 
in the 24, in 24 different chapters. He had saturated his mind, says one scholar, with sacred literature. He cites from eight different Old Testament books. Three times he's quoting from the Septuagint and the balance from the Hebrew text. Most importantly, I think, is as he writes this narrative, he talks about those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Luke had access to the original apostles. Luke spent time with the apostle Paul. Luke not only interviewed the eyewitnesses in the crowds, but those who were on the front row of the life and ministry of Jesus. And when Luke was writing, it was about 60 A.D., If you think it was later, I have a bone to pick with you. I think the Gospel of Mark was about 52 AD. It was written first. And then Luke and Matthew and John was the last of the four to be written. And so we peg Luke about 60 to 63 AD. And there are a lot of good reasons for doing that. Even though we don't have a date and time stamp. Why do we mention that? Well, because some people who were alive when Jesus was walking the earth and doing his public ministry around 33 AD, those people were still alive. And the eyewitnesses could say, oh, Luke, you nailed it. That's exactly how I remembered it. And that phrase, I'll never forget it, that Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Or that Jesus indeed cast out demons or whatever the eyewitnesses would report to Luke. Luke himself was not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He's younger. He was a companion to Paul and other apostles. So he used his research. Let's look at Luke as a competent historian. Our second heading. What do we know about Luke? Well, we know that uh, he was a well-educated Greek-speaking man. Perhaps he was from Antioch. That's the common tradition. We don't know that for sure. But it would make sense. Antioch, the launching point of Christian missions. It was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. It was the the epicenter, as it were, of what was happening after uh, Christians had moved largely out of Jerusalem and started spreading out. That's Luke. It's a Greek name. Perhaps he was a Gentile at birth. Perhaps not. We don't know his origins. But he was familiar with God's word. And we do know that Luke is called the beloved physician. Colossians 4 verse 14. Is Paul's wrapping up that letter? Paul knew Luke really well. We'll get to that. But he refers to Luke as Luke the beloved physician. What difference does that make in the writing of a book? Well, if you've met anyone who's gone through med school or one of those long, arduous, important professional degrees, and the ancient world is probably comparable, he had skills. He had a mind. He had powers of observation. He understood things largely unseen in the human body. And that carefulness, that giftedness was used of God to put together this book. To give to the church a portrait of Jesus. Luke is an educated man and a physician and he writes the longest book in the Bible. His writing is erudite and superb. I mean, who else begins a a book with the word in so much as? 
inasmuch as. There's a formalness to his Greek, and it's a good book in that regard. And he wrote a sequel. It's his life work. And if you read the book of Acts, the second part, and he's not done because, you know why? Why does he have to write a sequel? Because Jesus is still alive. And Jesus is still at work in the world, largely through his spirit, through the body of Christ, through his apostles. So Luke had to keep writing. And he dedicates both to this man called Theophilus. We don't know much about Theophilus. It does mean lover of God, the name Theo and and Phileo together. But we think he was a real person. It was a common name back then, according to historians. But when he's called excellent Theophilus, he was probably uh, a nobleman or perhaps an official who was also a believer. And he said, "I, I need to know, Paul. I need to know, did Jesus really say that? Did Jesus really do that? And Paul tells him, yes. Read, believe, and be certain. Luke is a competent historian. He's educated. Secondly, he's a companion of the apostles. When you read the book of Acts, especially from the middle to the end, you often see the narrator saying, we traveled, we sailed. Do you know why? Because Luke was on the boat. Because Luke walked that dusty road. Because Luke was there when Paul uh, got chased or when the mob erupted. Luke's name in the New Testament is only found three times spelled out. All by the Apostle Paul. Paul knew this guy. Paul vouches for this guy. He traveled with Paul. When Paul wrote to Philemon, he calls Luke a fellow worker. Not just a reporter tagging along. A participant in the ministry. Indeed, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 18, there's a passage there as Paul's telling the Corinthians, we've gone through this, uh, I'm going to send Titus, and with Titus, I'm going to send the guy who's famous for his preaching. We don't know for sure who that was. Do you know who I think it was? I think it was Luke. I think it was Luke who came to faith in Christ and he made uh, this his occupation to study the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not practicing medicine anymore. Does that remind you of another figure from church history? In the uh, 19th and 20th century, there was a man born in Wales with a long hyphenated name, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a medical doctor. He was on the staff of the the king of England. Uh, To be a royal physician was pretty high up there. To, let, to touch the royal body and to administer medications. He had trained as a doctor, but he was also a fervent believer and a preacher. And the Lord called him into ministry. And the doctor, physician, David Lloyd Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, became one of the great preachers ever to use the English language. I've read hundreds of his sermons. They are superb And you can almost see his diagnostic skills as he brings his introduction and says, this is what's wrong with the world. And now look at what God's word says to that very issue. If you've never read a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones, look him up. His sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. His sermons on Ephesians. His sermons on Romans. 
his sermons from the Psalms, or his evangelistic sermons. Luke, the doctor, could have been that excellent preacher. Both Luke and the book of Acts are anonymous, but the earliest discussions discussions and traditions attribute them to Luke. That's very much the consensus. Luke, the diligent historian. Do you see his fascination here? Luke doesn't simply replicate what all the other Gospels know. I said that Gospel of Mark was written first. Luke had a copy of the Gospel of Mark. We can say that with certainty. Because so much of his Gospel repeats verbatim what Mark wrote. Luke had other sources as well. And in some cases, Luke has things that neither Matthew, Mark, or John have. There's a whole bunch of stuff that Luke found out and wrote. He is fascinated. He pursues this and brings things to light. Do you know some of his particular unique material? He's the only one to record Mary's song about the coming birth of Jesus, or Zechariah's song, or Simeon's response in the temple. Luke is the only one to mention the angel chorus at the birth of Jesus. Where would we be without that wonderful glory to God? Do you know the parable of the Good Samaritan? That's only in Luke. Do you know Luke chapter 15 has three parables of lostness, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son? We call that the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15 is the only one that has those. There are portraits in Luke of women disciples. They're named the women disciples of Jesus. Not apostles, but disciples. And he has the post-resurrection scene with two dejected disciples kicking the can from Jerusalem to the little city of Emmaus. And Jesus comes among them and their hearts were strangely warmed as they said, you guys, what happened fulfilled scripture. The things that have been accomplished have been according to scripture and right on track with God's plan. And then their eyes were opened and Jesus was recognized. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. It's only in Luke. Thank God that Luke was diligent. Thank God that Luke was fascinated and pursued the story as fully as the Spirit led him to do so. A couple words of praise. One great uh, secular historian said this about Luke. Whenever modern scholarship has been able to check up on the accuracy of Luke's work, The judgment has been unanimous. He is one of the finest and ablest historians in the ancient world. Said by one of the famous historians of Western civilization. An archaeologist by the name of William Ramsey said this back in the early 1900s. Luke is a historian of the first rate. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. He seizes the important and critical events and shows their true nature at greater length while he touches lightly on much that was valueless for his purpose. In short, this author should be placed among the very greatest of historians. My friends, the Gospel of Luke and the person of Luke take a back seat to no historian. 
Writing history is hard work, especially when it's a controversial figure, some, some figure that the world wants to bring down. And Luke succeeds. And Luke's work passes the test and stands up to the scrutiny of the skeptics. And even non-religious scholars praise his work. So I can hardly wait to get to the content of this book. But we're laying the foundation here because in God's word we have this preface which emphasizes the historical reliability of this writing. And that's important. This is a compelling gospel with a capital G. Again, referring to the book, the book that's about Jesus. What is a gospel? Well, it's a particular type of literature about Jesus. And it's connected to historical events and the Old Testament context. It's based on eyewitness reports and research, and its aim is to foster faith, to bring us to understanding as we connect the dots set before us, like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, whose hearts burned within them as Jesus spoke. Why does Luke call his account orderly? Why does Luke call his account orderly? Back to our text, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that had been accomplished among us. Down to verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Many had been writing and compiling, but Luke is going to write his work, and he calls it an orderly account. I don't think that's a put down on Mark's gospel, which he had. But he's just saying there's so much out there. We need to bring our best abilities to getting this right. Truth be told, we have to put it all out there. And it's wonderful to see. This adverb is only used in Luke and Acts. It's only used by this author. And it means orderly sequence. And it doesn't necessarily mean Luke has everything chronologically in the perfect order, but in the general sense, a connected, coherent, and originally sequential account that one could readily follow. It's orderly. It makes sense. It's logical. It flows. This verb, uh, orderly, adverb. Philip Ryken, the preacher now in Wheaton, Illinois, formerly in Philadelphia, said if Mark was a storyteller, and if John a philosopher, then Luke is an investigative reporter in how he puts his account together. And John MacArthur has pointed out that his research was orchestrated by divine providence. Luke's gospel seems oriented around a theme And perhaps it's the theme that comes out that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That could be the theme of the Gospel, of Luke or any of the four Gospels. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if you break down, here's the broad outline of the whole 24 chapters of Luke. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, Jesus comes. 
chapters 4 to 21, he seeks. In those last chapters, 22, 23, 24, Jesus saves. That's a very helpful and broad outline to keep in mind. And I know in that outline, the middle, the seeking is a lot of chapters. 4 to 21, seeking. That is further broken down into two parts. The ministry of Jesus up in Galilee is chapters 4 through 9. And then Jesus who aims for Jerusalem from chapters 9 to 19 and 20. Going to Jerusalem. Luke is very orderly and he gathers things and lays them out. So that when we come to the end, we can find a greater certainty for our faith. This is a compelling gospel, an orderly account, and it brings us a greater assurance of faith. Paul, excuse me, Luke uses this word certainty. What does he mean as he gets to the end of this text, verse 4, writing to Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You've heard about Jesus, but do you have certainty? Are you sure? Not simply about their historicity, but your belief and connection to them. You see, Luke is talking about not just knowing the true facts, but believing them and being secure in them. That's the aim of the Bible. If you didn't know this, the preacher's job isn't just to tell you about Jesus. The preacher's job is to call you to believe and follow Jesus. To know him and be known by him. To have a relationship with Jesus. To repent of being your own Lord and Master and serving yourself sinfully. And serve God and repent of that and flee to Jesus and cling to Jesus and follow Jesus. And be loved by Jesus. To come to this assurance of faith. The word that Paul uses here uh, means absolute certainty. The Greek word means a state of security from falling, firmness, safety, security. We might say locked down, locked in, nailed down. Right? In Acts chapter 5, this word is used again in this sentence. As there was a jailbreak, the disciples were out in public and the jailer was sent back and he said, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. He said it was locked down, tight. No one could have gotten out, he said, the guard in Acts. That's what Paul wants Theophilus to understand. You can know enough about Jesus that you can trust him completely. And have confidence in who he is. What he will do for you. That he will keep his word. And you're in a good place. Because our entire salvation depends upon the things that Jesus accomplished in history. Do we know those things? Do we believe those things? We need to know that he died. That he died according to the scriptures. He was the spotless lamb, the Passover lamb that was slain in our place. And how do we get get in on that deal that he's dying in our place? By our faith in him. Jesus called us to believe in him. 
we need to know. Stepping back and looking at these 24 chapters of Luke, why would we want to preach through the the whole Gospel of Luke? Don't we already know who Jesus is? Truth be told, a lot of people, even a lot of people sitting in churches, don't know fully what they need to know. You see, it's not enough to have a patchwork idea of who Jesus is or something he once said or did, or just to remember a a flannel graph lesson from Sunday school. We need to know him sufficiently and properly. We need the spiritual scope of an inspired book of the Bible, like Luke. I was thinking about this when uh, Douglas J.W. Milne wrote the following observation. He said, a postmodern and relativistic age, that's us, delights in stories, but disowns meta-narratives, the big stories that provide a total framework for giving meaning to existence and the future by speaking with final authority. That's resisted. But in the absence of such narratives, men and women, he says, suffer irreparably by losing hope and something to believe in that transcends themselves. He says the story of Jesus is the best and brightest of all meta-narratives, all worldviews. One that more than any other has the power to shape our destinies and to remake us in his moral and spiritual likeness. Boom. You don't just need to know a saying of Jesus. You don't just need to know a miracle of Jesus. You need to see the big picture. He fulfills history. He is the climax of God's work in the world that God has made. And it is only through a relationship with this Jesus that you will ever see heaven and escape The penalty of hell. Jesus. Jesus is the need of the world in this troubled hour. Not a new political leader or avoiding a a different cultural issue. Jesus is what the world needs. They need to know him. And they need to know and trust him. Let me land the plane. Let me remind you what we need to do in light of the word today. Number one, meet Jesus and put your faith in him. Jesus has not yet been named in the first four verses, but it's coming. You know it's coming. You know where this is going. And you know the end of the gospel. But will you be open to the Jesus of the Bible and put your faith in him? Don't be with those people in the world who say things like, oh, my God would never send anyone to hell. Oh, my God doesn't judge anyone. My God is always just loving. Easy to mock. But you need to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. There's only one. Don't believe the wrong Jesus. In order to come to faith, You need this accurate, historic, truth-be-told information. 
so that you call on the name of the Lord Jesus. A second exhortation is this. You should gain assurance and certainty for your faith by reading the Gospel of Luke. You can grow more certain. If there's some shaky experience in in, in your heart and mind and you're just not sure if you're yet a believer or there's something you don't yet know about Jesus, this book will help. I love what Phil Riken said so plainly. We do not become certain by looking at our own outstanding spiritual performance. The only way we become sure of our salvation is by looking to Jesus and knowing him better. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Is he not? Amen. Dr. Luke points us to the solution, to the Savior who will heal our sin-sick soul. I'm so thankful for Dr. Luke. And thirdly, if you know Jesus and you're sure of your faith, you need to help others trust and believe because there are many accounts out in the world. You need to take what Luke will teach you and tell others. You need to be a faithful, not eyewitness, a faithful hearer of this gospel and be a minister of the word and deliver it to others. Luke esteemed those who delivered the truth to him. It changed him, changed his profession. He would get on a boat with that crazy Apostle Paul, if we can put it that way. I'm with you. Let's go tell people about Jesus. The ship's going down. There's a shipwreck coming. Okay. Luke, the co-worker of Paul, captivated with Jesus and wanting others to hear. Do you want others to hear? Do you want others to have the hope and the joy that you have? You'll have ample occasion over the next many weeks and months to say, I learned this about Jesus. Did you know this? May the Lord cause his word to run with power among us and beyond us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit opening it to us today. Even this preface of the book. We thank you for Luke, for his commitment to historic accuracy. And we're thankful that this book of Luke and this Bible can stand the test of critics. It can stand the test of time and the scrutiny of opponents. This anvil of truth Long may it serve the church and the world. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would understand and that we would believe and share what you teach us here. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The second Sunday of the month is our communion.